Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians chapter 3, and we will be there again this morning. You'll remember last week we read the beginning of chapter 3, and I'll refer to some of that this morning as well. Paul there had listed all the worldly reasons that he had to be confident in himself, and there he cast all of that away because of Christ. And that then carries him on to another truth of the gospel that goes deep into who you are and what you do. So you young ones, you you young disciples among us, as you listen, something here for you to pay attention to, you belong to your parents, right? But you also belong to someone else. Who? And why does it matter? Why does it matter to whom you belong? Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flowers fade, But these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray, as we always do, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and allow us to see the beauty of your gospel and to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you be seated? In April of 1996, a young woman testified before the Constitution Subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee in Washington, D.C., and this is what she said. My name is Gianna Jensen. I am 19 years of age. I am originally from California, but now reside in Tennessee. I am adopted. I have cerebral palsy. My biological mother was 17 years old and seven and one-half months pregnant when she made the decision to have a saline abortion. I am the person she aborted. I lived instead of died. Fortunately for me, the abortionist was not in the clinic when I arrived alive instead of dead at 6 a.m. that morning. I was early. My death was not expected to be seen until about 9 a.m. during office hours. 
Some have said, I am a botched abortion, a result of a job not well done. There were many witnesses to my entry into this world. My biological mother and other young girls in the clinic, who also awaited the death of their babies, were the first to greet me. I am told this was a hysterical moment. A staff nurse called emergency medical services and had me transferred to a hospital where I remained for almost three months. There was not much hope for me in the beginning. I weighed only two pounds. A doctor once said that I had a great will to live and that I fought for my life. I eventually was able to leave the hospital and be placed in foster care. I was diagnosed with cerebral cerebral palsy as a result of the abortion. My foster mother was told that it was doubtful that I would ever crawl or walk. I could not sit up independently. Through the prayers and dedication of my foster mother and later many other people, I eventually learned to sit up, crawl, then stand. I walked with leg braces and a walker shortly before I turned age four. I was legally adopted by my foster mother's daughter a few months after I began to walk. I have continued in physical therapy for my disability, and after a total of four surgeries, I can now walk without assistance. It's not easy. Sometimes I fall, but I have learned how to fall gracefully after falling for 19 years. I am happy to be alive. I almost died. Every day, I thank God for life. Stories like this one should move you. Stories like this one should rouse you to a righteous anger against the cruelty and the injustice and even the frailty that exists in a fallen world around us. Stories like this one may even stir you to put on Superman's cape, as it were, to play the hero, to go and be the defender of the fatherless and the unloved, to be the lover of the weak, the lost, and the forgotten. Stories like this one should create in you an admiration for a foster mother and even more so for an adoptive family who would make as their own a broken and needy and useless to the world child. Stories like this one should do all those things in you, but the gospel says there's one more thing. The gospel says there's one more thing that a story like this should do in you, and that is it should take you back to the day Jesus took you in and made you His. Paul is taken back to that day here as he writes this letter to the Philippians. But his memory of being a crippled, lost, and unwanted child is very different than the one that your mind is wrapped around right now. Gianna Jensen had no reason, no reason at all, to have confidence in the flesh. Paul had many reasons. He listed them out for us last week. Paul had many reasons for that confidence. She had no hope of forging a way through a cold and unforgiving world. Paul had every hope of that in his own strength. But one thing that they did have in common was this. She had no strength in her pitiful soul. And neither did Paul. She knew it. He didn't. Despite all the worldly worth that Paul could claim for himself, 
his soul was effectively a failed abortion, abandoned by the fall to a cold world, disabled and useless, left to die, and such were you and I. Such were you and I. If it's true that all is rubbish, as Paul has said here in this passage, that the best in this world is loss in the next. If it's true that ritual and heritage, that morality and personality and legality, all of those things that Paul claimed that we saw last week, if it's true that all of those things, that all that seems of value to us is of none in the economy of God, if it's true, then apart from grace, your soul is a failed abortion. Your soul is abandoned by the fall. Apart from grace, you don't belong. But the gospel is, you do belong. By grace, you do belong. Paul insists, I press on to make this gospel of Christ my own because... He has made me His own. And just what does it mean that He has made me His own? Paul explains to us. He says it it means that I was loved. It means that I am covered. And it means that I will be perfect. I was loved yesterday, Paul writes here. I was loved yesterday. The gospel is that you were loved before you knew that you were loved. And you are still loved even now, even when you don't feel like you're loved, you are loved in the gospel. He writes it this way. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. I want to know Christ, Paul insists. I want to know Him. He has known me. I want to know Him. Paul has a a gospel desire growing in him to return to Jesus what Jesus has already given to him. He wants to know Jesus because Jesus knows him. He states it in verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I don't consider that I've made it my own. But I do know that Christ has made me His own. Paul wants to know Jesus because Jesus knows Paul. Paul wants to love Jesus because Jesus has loved Paul. He agrees with the Apostle John who wrote, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Paul's simply repeating in his own words what John would say there. And notice the train of thought in verses 9 and 10. If you kind of put your theological glasses on and pay attention to that. From gaining Christ, Paul moves to justification. A righteousness that is not my own. From there he moves to sanctification. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And from there he moves on to glorification. I hope to attain the resurrection from the dead. It's very similar to a very familiar passage in Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, and now here you have to pause, because there's something you have to know about that word. Foreknew. For those God foreknew, 
Paul wrote, but he doesn't mean for those of whom God was aware. God is aware of everyone. He knows of every individual at every time and every moment and everything that's going to happen with them as an omniscient God. It's not just that God was foreaware. It is that God was intimately involved in caring for these ones of whom He had expressed His love. For those God foreloved, Paul writes, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He foreloved, He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. You see the string unfolding theologically there, the same string that Paul gives to us in Philippians 3. The Gospel is that you were foreknown, foreloved. The Gospel is that you were known or loved before you knew it. The Gospel is that before you were born, you were loved. You were loved before you were even conceived in body or in imagination in the minds of your parents. You were already loved in the Gospel. In fact, you were known and loved before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us this as well in 2 Timothy. He says, God saved us and called us because of His own purpose and grace, which was given to us when? Before the world began. Now remember, Paul has just discarded the folly of worldly confidence as we saw that last week. If you remember, he's thrown away the approval and the respect of other people that we so long for even now. He's tossed aside the morality and the personality and the legality, all the things that he claimed as matters of personal importance. All the, remember, ashtrays and matchboxes and paddle games, the absurd and ridiculous things that we clutter up in our arms and hang on to thinking that they make us significant. He's thrown them all away, calling them loss, calling them rubbish, calling them even dung, waste. And he is left with nothing to hang on to but Jesus. And now he's telling you, Jesus has been hanging on to you from before the time the world began. You were loved before the world began. Have you ever gotten one of those Chinese fortune cookies and read the fortune and thought, no, 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 that's not me. (laughs) I got one just a week or so ago. I broke it up and pulled it out and it said, you have a talent for all that is artistic. Hey, Why are you laughing? (laughs) You know, I laughed too. I said, no, 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 that's not me. A couple of weeks ago, I had gotten a a new pair of shorts. Mary had gotten a new pair of shorts for me as summer approaches. They're green shorts. I didn't have any green shorts. I had also recently gotten a new shirt for a birthday, a striped blue and white shirt. And one morning I got up and I thought, well, I'll just wear my new clothes. And so I put them both on. You already know something I didn't. I walked into the kitchen, and Mary immediately saw me. She didn't say good morning. She said, can I offer you some unsolicited advice? I said, okay. She corrected my wardrobe, and she said, look, if you don't believe me, ask Ansley. Ansley's our eight-year-old daughter who knows all things artistic. And I looked at Ansley, and she looked at me, and she smiled. 
She said, you need to change. You have a talent for all things artistic. No, 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 I don't. Your dreams will come true today. No, no, they won't. A little slip of paper. Your social savvy will conquer the world. No, 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 you don't understand. The gospel is the fortune cookie that's too good to be true. It is the fortune cookie paper that tells you something that you initially want to say, no, 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 no. That's not true. The gospel is the fortune cookie paper that tells you you were loved before the foundation of the world. What? No, you you must not understand. You were loved before the foundation of the world, Paul says. I want to know Christ because Christ has known me. He has made me His own. I want to know Him because He knows me. He has loved me since before the foundation of the world. The gospel is that I was loved yesterday. But it's more than just then. The gospel is also now. Because not only was I loved yesterday, but I am covered today. He goes on to explain that. Verse 7. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You can do away with worldly confidences when you see that the purpose for which you try in vain to use them has already been served deeply And permanently. Here is the theological face of the gospel. Justification. Justification. Not only has the passive righteousness of Christ received my death sentence on the cross. That's the one that we understand. But also, the active righteousness of Christ has gained me entrance. He has made me His own And what I now wear comes from Him. When you come to the communion table on communion Sundays, you know, we have things to say to you at the table. And sometimes they're different, but often they're the same. And each week as I serve you the tray of wine, one of the things that I've just hung my hat on saying to you is, because I know you don't really believe it in your heart, and I don't either, We have to hear it again and again and again. What I say to you is, by faith, you wear the very righteousness of Jesus Himself. That's justification. That's the gospel. You are covered. And you may understand this, but when it comes to wearing the righteousness of Jesus, we struggle with it. But it should be easy. It is simply possessing something that is valuable because of what someone else has already done with it. That's what it is. Sports fans will understand this perhaps pretty well. Maybe to stay on the baseball theme. In the summer of 1998, Mary and I lived in St. Louis, Missouri. I was in seminary. And there was that summer a baseball home run race to beat Roger Maris's long-standing record of 61 home runs in one season. That record had stood for decades. And in the summer of 1998, that record was 
up for grabs because a couple of players, including Mark McGuire of the St. Louis Cardinals, were chasing after it. I'm a sports fan and, and was watching and, and taking interest in it. And into June, I, I kind of began to calculate, you know, when is maybe he going to hit number 62? He's going to break the record. We can all see it coming. So I began to, to kind of recognize he's hitting kind of so many home runs every five games or so. And that means that at about this date in the summer, he's going to break the record. So I bought tickets. And I struck the jackpot. We were there the night that he hit number 62. The problem was we were sitting in right field and he hits him to left field. We weren't going to get the ball. Someone was. And there was much speculation leading up to the game about the value of that baseball once he hit it and whoever had it in their hands. So we were there. McGuire stepped to the plate. Boom, home run, line drive, straight over left field wall fireworks, big celebration. For 30 minutes, the game was stopped. Number 62 landed between the wall and the stands, down underneath, and some lucky grounds crewman picked up his retirement check in the form of a five-ounce baseball. I hope he sold it quickly. Because soon, number 63 and 64... Five, six, seven, eight, nine, and number 70 were going to land in the stands. And at the end of the season, Todd McFarlane, who was then a 37-year-old entertainment entrepreneur, dropped $2.6 million for baseball home run number 70. $2.6 million for the record ball. Imagine what you would do With a home run ball. I mean, even just an everyday one, if you caught a home run ball, if you caught that ball out at the ballpark yesterday that Josh Hamilton hit in the bottom of the 13th inning, you would show up here at church the next morning with that baseball. And you'd be showing it off. No, 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 you can't touch it. Josh Hamilton hit this one over the fence, and I caught it. See it? You'd be showing it off, wouldn't you? I mean, just imagine it coming to you. Imagine... It's hit, and here it comes, and the whole crowd is, is scrambling for it, and that ball comes to you. Here it comes, and it's yours. It's in your hands. What would you do with it? Imagine if you had the home run ball, the $2.6 million ball. What would you do if some guy with more money than brains offered a blank check to you for it? Would you take it? What would you do? You'd be tempted not to take it. It's a baseball. $2.6 million. Would you take it? McFarlane later admitted, he said, look, women don't have the same silly wants and needs that men have. He said, guys can just look at this sedate piece of leather and go, whoa, it's the ball. And we can. We're amazed by it. At one moment, it was a $5 piece of sports equipment in a bucket with a hundred others. And the next moment, because of a swing of the bat, it's a national treasure. We understand perfectly what it is to possess something that is valuable because of what someone else has done with it. And that's exactly what you have by faith. Something infinitely greater than any sports memorabilia. memorabilia. It cannot be lost. It's 
infinite value is established by God Himself regardless of the world market for it. And you wear it. You wear it. But it doesn't end there. He has made me His own, so I was loved yesterday. I am covered today. But what about tomorrow? Paul says, there's more. Because tomorrow I will be perfect. Verse 12, he writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He has made me His own, so I will be perfect tomorrow. Not today. Tomorrow. Now, this is glorification. Let me careful, be careful. This is not perfectionism. This is glorification. These are two very distinct, two very different things for us to understand. Perfectionism, I'm going to borrow a couple of definitions from a friend of mine. I think these are helpful. Perfectionism is the oppressive belief that all things will be made right on this earth and earth and in this life by your own power and might. Perfectionism is the oppressive belief that all things will be made right on this earth, in this life, by your own power and might. That's not what Paul's writing about. Glorification, on the other hand, is this. It is the liberating truth that all things will be made right in heaven after this life by God's power and might. Glorification is the liberating truth that all things will be made right in heaven after this life by God's power and might. Perfectionism is what you and I long for in thinking about white picket fences and perfect children and pleasant vacations. That's what we want. We want perfection. Perfectionism. Paul says, I'm not already perfect, but his implication is, I will be tomorrow. But he's not talking about perfectionism. Heaven is what Paul strains for. Heaven is what Paul strains forward to reach. It is the prize toward which Paul presses. We walk around discontent and frustrated all the time. All the time. Because what we've settled for is simply degrees of perfection. That's what we want. We want certain degrees of perfection. I have uh, had dentists before tell me that my, my bite is all wrong. Something's wrong. with Your bite needs to be corrected. It's just not going to work. It's worked for me for 44 years. But they always want to persuade me otherwise. And, and so finally, a dentist told me, you've got to go get a consultation with an oral surgeon. Let's, let's just see what they say and, and, and see what, what might be done about it. And so I went to one oral surgeon, and he said, oh, yeah, I'll do this and that for you, and it'll take a year or two or three. And, and then I said, no, no, no. And then I went to another oral surgeon that the dentist had given me, and he said, look, degrees of perfection. You're fine. You're 44 years old. It hadn't given you any trouble yet. It's not going to. 
degrees of perfection. All it is is I can increase the degree of your perfection. Oh, you're not perfect, he said. But there are degrees of it. What degree is acceptable to you? That's all we want. We walk around discontent with what we have or who we are because of degrees of perfection. How much is enough? Gianna Jensen has cerebral palsy. That means that her mind is there, her muscles are there, but they don't communicate right. They don't work right together. Her degree of perfection is much lower than yours, probably. But what is yours? What is your acceptable degree of perfection? Whatever it is, I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't enough. Whatever degree of perfection seems to you acceptable is not enough. Because what you're after is perfectionism. Paul is speaking about glorification. Paul's not concerned about now. He's concerned about tomorrow. Tomorrow I will be perfect. Not as a perfectionist, but as a glorified saint in Jesus. Tomorrow, all things will be set right by God in His power and might in heaven for me. Tomorrow, I will be perfect. We're like the child, as C.S. Lewis alludes to, that's content to play in the patch of mud in the yard because we don't know what it's like to spend a day on the soft white sand at the seaside. Our degree of perfection is far too low. And we settle for it. It's all that we think that we want, and we're discontent. Paul says, look, Jesus has made you his own. He says, brothers, I don't consider that I have yet made this my own. I've not yet attained the resurrection of the dead. I am not already perfect, but tomorrow I will be because Jesus has made me his own. You are loved before the world began. Whether you feel it or not, by faith in the gospel in Jesus, you are loved before the world began. You are covered with an infinite value that is not your own. And in a day yet to come, by faith, you will know the liberating glory of heaven because Jesus has made you His own. Father, I pray that You would grant to us that we might believe this Gospel, that we might trust in and recognize the righteousness of Jesus for us, and that we might live in contentment, recognizing that yesterday we were loved by You more than we can imagine, and that today we are covered by you in your righteousness and that tomorrow we will be made perfect. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant to us faith to believe and to live by faith in this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.